Higher Voltage is brought to you by Salesforce. Today's higher ed marketers face new challenges and must expand beyond traditional tactics to engage their many audiences. Learn how Salesforce empowers institutions of all sizes to unify first-party data, build and measure targeted campaigns, and deliver personalized messaging across channels. Visit salesforce.org to learn about how Salesforce can help your college or university achieve its goals. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast about higher education that explores what's working, what's not, and what needs to change in higher ed marketing and administration. I'm your host, Kevin Tyler. Welcome to Higher Voltage. Uh, I am joined today by Matt Reed from the New Jersey Council of County Colleges. We are talking to him about prestige in higher ed uh, and how that is the currency of the day and how uh, social mobility might be more people's responsibility uh, than just elite college brands. Before we get into our conversation today, I'd love for Matt to introduce himself. Please tell us a little bit about what you do day to day and we'll get into our conversation. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, my name is Matt Reed. I'm with the Council of County Colleges in New Jersey right now. I'm also with Brookdale Community College, where I'm the Vice President for Academic Affairs. Been there for seven years. Um, prior to that, was an Academic Vice President at a community college up in Massachusetts for seven years, Holyoke Community College. Kind of an accidental administrator. I meant to be a faculty member and <laughs> um, got the PhD in political science, and I thought I'd join some liberal arts college and be the beloved older professor with the tweed and the elbow patches and all the rest of it. But nobody was hiring for that when I got my doctorate, so I had to find other ways to make a living. Found my way to uh, DeVry, of all places, in the late 90s, teaching a, a smattering of courses across the gen ed fields. And within a few years, moved into administration there and kind of been in administration ever since. The Inside High Red piece you're referring to have a, a column there called Confessions of a Community College Dean, which I've been writing for Inside Higher Ed since 2007. Uh, so it's been a while trying to bring to the sort of overall discussion about higher ed a perspective from in the trenches of a community college. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not, but I keep trying. <laughs> That's great. Your column is um, always a great read. The last couple of installments specifically around rankings and public transportation, all very, very compelling. And I love how you keep a close eye on access and the impact of access on a quality higher ed uh, experience. Specifically, though, I ran across your piece in Inside Higher Ed. That was a response to a piece written by someone else named Ryan Craig uh, Mm -hmm. that talked about or used, I guess, the city of Houston as a way to argue or support the idea that elite higher ed brands uh, have a specific role in social mobility and if they expanded to cities uh, where that opportunity was available to them. And you had a very specific response to that piece. And I'm curious if you could kind of lay out some of the parts you took some issue with and some of the crux of your response to to Ryan Craig's piece, if you could. Sure. Um, And let me stipulate up front, I don't know Ryan Craig personally, so I don't want to impute any intent. Sure. Um, His argument was that part of the reason that Americans resent higher education in increasing numbers is they see it as elitist and out of touch. And the way to fix that, in his view, is to open up branch campuses of very elite places all around the country where there might be unmet demand. So he gave the example of Houston, Texas, which is obviously a large and rapidly growing city, made the argument that I guess the University of Houston had recently fought off an expansion by the University of Texas into Houston. And he said, you know, this is clearly ridiculous. What we need is for the the private institutions, the elite sort of Ivies, 
to open up branch campuses in all these various places to increase uh, social mobility and visibility and to bring other parts of the country into the higher ed conversation. Now, part of my background, I, I did the elite higher ed thing as an undergrad. I went to Williams College, which is a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts, got my hand stamped. So I kind of feel like I'm allowed to, you know, bash the elites if I want to, because I've been there. What struck me in, in reading his piece, he sort of assumed that there are the top 20 or so universities in the country that actually matter, and all the rest of them don't, and that the top 20 or so can provide social mobility, and all the rest of them can't. And I thought, now, wait a minute. Um, from the perspective of someone in the community college world, I can tell you straight up, that's ridiculous. So I, I wrote a response in which I mentioned, you know, Yale and New Haven, the, the main campus, has about 4,700 undergraduates. Houston Community College has 48,000. So the idea that Houston lacks access, I think, is not quite right. But more to the point, what makes Yale Yale is the fact that most people never get in. If it opened up to be, you know, Yale Community College, it would lose its prestige. That the whole point of Yale is that it's hard to get in. And working in the community college world, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with the sort of stigma that attaches to open admission institutions. Um, as the old Groucho Marx joke, I've never joined a club that would accept me as a member. People sometimes use the exclusivity of a college as a, a proxy for quality. So they assume if if it's hard to get into, it must be good. Sort of like with a restaurant, if you, if you see a restaurant you've never been to before and there's a line out the door, you assume it must be good. The problem with that is, well, maybe it's good, maybe it isn't. Maybe we're measuring the right things or the wrong things. But at a really basic level, the idea that the only way to encourage social mobility is to exclude 97% of the population is sort of self-contradicting on its face. <laughs> the whole point of social mobility is that it's open to a whole lot of people. So I pushed back and said, nothing against Yale, but that's really missing the point, that if we want to have broad... Uh, social mobility and broad access to good education, we're not going to get it by having, you know, Harvard open up in Indianapolis. We're going to get it by having community colleges and state colleges all around the country be well-funded, be supported, be respected, and, and just be allowed to fulfill their missions. Yale is a unique case, and we can think of, you know, the top 20 unique cases, but that's never going to be more than one or 2% of the undergrad population in the country. And even there, most Americans don't go to college. So you're talking about one or 2% of the maybe 40% who ever go. To say that that's the key to social mobility, I think, is self-defeating. I want to make sure that everybody has access to education that can be empowering and that respects them as people. And that involves respecting institutions that do that work. Definitely. The point that you just raised around exclusivity being a proxy for quality. I would also add like uh, price being a proxy for quality as well. I am curious if you think in this conversation that prestige and access can exist in the same space. And if so, uh, what will it take for us to get to that kind of point? Honestly, I think it can because it has. Um, the University of California was free until the 70s, which suggests that this is possible. Um, City University of New York was free until the 70s as well. And CUNY, the what, upper alcove, I think, lives in legend. All of the thinkers who came out of that 
uh, working class, you know, not paying any tuition in the 30s and 40s and went on to become sort of the leading lights of American letters. It can be done. Um, I'm told that actually in Canada, the model that they use, University of Toronto is both one of the most prestigious in the country and also one of the biggest, that when there was demand, they just made it bigger to accommodate the demand. And that's something you don't see the prestigious American places doing. Uh, Harvard has not grown. Williams is still 2,000 students, the same as it was when I went there 30-something years ago. Yale is not growing. That's the one piece of Ryan Craig's article I, I did agree with. Um, these institutions mostly have not grown. Interestingly enough, the one exception to that among the prestigious private ones is Rice University, which is actually in Houston. Um, he mentions that in passing. But I don't think there's a contradiction between being respected and being open. I think there is a contradiction between being exclusive and providing mobility. I'm curious if you know of any schools currently that feel like the prioritization is more on the access and while maintaining a level of prestige that is valuable or attractive to families. Is there Are there ones you can point to that you've been, come across? A lot of the flagship state universities, I think, are very good at that. Um, University of Michigan leaps to mind that you can be a pretty good student from Ypsilanti, Michigan, and go to the University of Michigan for in-state tuition. And it's one of the more respected universities in the country. A lot of the flagship state universities are like that. Both of my kids actually go to flagship state universities. I think they do a nice job of meeting both demand and say, accessibility and excellence. Um, it can be done. It's not cheap. And I think that's part of the issue. But again, coming from a community college perspective, one of the great frustrations is that people get mad at the cost of Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and they act out by cutting funding to community colleges and state colleges. We are the low-cost alternatives. <laughs> That's not where you should be cutting. If you're serious about increasing access, what you want to do is flood the zone on the public side. Because if you don't, and we saw this in 2008, 9, 10 in California when the Great Recession hit and community college enrollments exploded for a couple of years. California at the same time cut funding to community colleges. And so you had community colleges developing wait lists to get in, which is not normally their pattern. Right. As a result, a lot of the students on the wait list went to for-profits, which are both more expensive and often less effective. So, you know, you see what happens if you cheap out on the public option. I would argue that having a, a robust public option which the U.S. did for a very long time, up until pretty much the 80s, is both uh, serving the profession well and serving students well. I guess I don't really know how to have a conversation about exclusivity and prestige um, and quality without bringing up rankings, <laughs> yeah. um, which were recently released. And we saw all of the tweets and press releases and stories about who aren't ranked where, et cetera. And there has been a lot said um, about the, the problem with rankings. I've been vocal about it uh, several times on the show included. Do you think that there is a way to update the way that we assess the quality of institutions so that they devalue prestige and prioritize outcomes? Yes. Washington Monthly, I think, has done a good sort of first cut at that. Uh, their rankings focus primarily on the social mobility that they provide to their graduates. It's not a perfect system because if you start with a fairly solid middle-class group of graduates, you're never going to hit the top just because they're not going to move up as far. They're already in the middle. 
So you had a whole lot of sort of HSIs blowing the, the roof off the rankings and a whole bunch of other ones in the middle, which I think is partially reflective of the demographics you start with. That if you start with everyone on the bottom, you can move up more quartiles because you have more quartiles to move. So it's not a perfect system, but I think it values the right things a lot more. I mentioned in, in a previous column, one of the things I would love to see would be publication of how many credits from transfer students actually get applied to the major. You know, the, the point about acceptance of transfer credits matters a great deal, I think, because many students use the community college transfer route as their on-ramp to four-year institutions, um, particularly low-income students and students of color. And we know that they lose about 40% of the credits that they attempt to transfer, which means they have to retake the classes, pay for them again. It costs time, it costs money, it's demoralizing. Uh, if we could sort of name and shame the ones who are who are not great at transfer credit or alternately hold up the ones who are as role models, that's a kind of ranking in a sense, but I think it would actually be productive because it would incentivize the behavior we want to see. There are many four-year schools, and I used to work at one, where they won't even tell you how many credits you'll get in transfer until you agree to enroll, which is kind of like saying we're not going to tell you what the car costs until you agree to buy it. Um, right. That does not empower the student or the consumer. I'm a big fan of, let's put it all out there. If an institution has made a point of being transfer friendly, great, let's publicize that. If an institution is sort of hostile to transfer students, well, let's hold their feet to the fire a little bit in the interest of access. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that there are all these other places that people can look to for other more real assessments of the student experience. You, I've seen you know, here's what you can expect to, at this school on in places like TikTok, on Twitter, on Reddit. There are all these other places. And so if we are telling a story in our official materials that is not reflected in these other places that people are getting their information from and people go to a place and then it's not as accessible or as fulfilling or the experiences and as um, whole as it had, was promised to be, that's a real obstacle to put in people's in, in their trajectory in their lives. And so um, I feel like these rankings are a way of like making things shiny that aren't as shiny as they might want people to think they are. <laughs> sure. And, and I can tell you from a college perspective, anytime a college gets a good ranking somewhere, even if everyone kind of knows the methodology is silly, mm -hmm. they'll put it on the website. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. No matter we what. We were just ranked yeah. number three in the country for whatever as a sort of marketing thing. And at one level, you know, I get it. You need to do what you need to do. Right. Uh, but I think it can be very misleading. I mean, if, if yeah. I were to ask you, okay, what's the best car? Right. The first question to ask back would be, well, for what purpose? You exactly. Know, a race car, a commuter car, hauling around, you know, construction equipment. What are we talking about here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is true of colleges. Uh, different colleges are good at different things. And if you're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place, even if it's overall a strong college, if you're looking for the wrong thing, you're not going to find it. We're not going to find Agreed. it in good shape. But these rankings, you know, you have numbers one to whatever. I think they imply a false precision. How many notches better is the University of Virginia than Virginia Tech? Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, how would you measure that? Even something like graduate salaries can be misleading because those often reflect field of study more than quality. So if you have a school with a lot of engineers, you're going to have a higher average salary than if you have a school with a lot of social workers. But that doesn't mean that the school with the social workers is doing a bad job. It's just the field is different. Exactly. Um, 
you know, I think what rankings can do to the extent that they have any helpfulness is they can help the 16 or 17 year old who has no clue discover colleges they might not have known existed. And I can see virtue in that. But when you get down to, you know, which one is number six versus which one is number seven, it's false precision. Right, right. I think your point in, in the piece that you responded uh, to the base piece uh, in around the schools that are that have these elite brands in higher ed are not the ones that the majority of people have access to. So like if the majority of employers are hiring from a different set of institutions than those elites, and if if more Americans can access things like community colleges, state colleges, flagships, because of the exclusivity of these higher ed brands, it feels like that is the way to improve the uh, reputation of the space itself, but also uh, increase the mobility that we're actually trying to get after. Absolutely. Yeah. The vast majority of college graduates are not from the Ivies, and they never will be. Most people's experience of college, if they have any, is not of the Ivies. So if you really want to improve you know, folks' appreciation of college, uh, improve the ones that aren't the Ivies. Exactly. Give the Ivies a run for their money. Totally. And it's it's an interesting approach that uh, Mr. Craig takes in his piece only in that, and I don't know Ryan Craig either, but um, only in that it kind of ignores all the excellent work that the colleges and the cities that he lists in that piece are doing uh, as well. And so it's, I just kind of felt it was kind of a slight to the entire ecosystem of higher education that already exists by saying these elite brands are the, are the only ones who can save the future of higher ed, essentially. Exactly. You can slice and dice that in any number of ways. You could look at, you know, these elite brands tend to recruit only 18 year olds and they tend to recruit from a very specific set of high schools and a particular economic class. There's been some studies showing that in a lot of those elite schools, more than half of the students come from the top 1% of income. That's kind of amazing if you believe that that's where all the merit is. I just don't. (laughs) And again, having gone to one of those schools for undergrad, I can tell you that uh, wealth and intelligence are not the same thing. I knew some very smart people there, and I knew some very less smart people there. Uh, And when I went, you know, worked in community colleges or even at DeVry, I knew some very smart people there as well as some less smart people there. Talent is much more abundant and much more evenly distributed than prestige. I cannot tell you how much I love all the things that you just said. Wealth is not does not equate to intelligence, I think, is a remarkable way to say that, because similarly to the way that we uh, as Americans or people assess price as being a proxy for quality, wealth is also like an indication of here, like to some, like what you are worth, right? Like how, yeah, how quality yeah. of a person you are. And uh, I think that is just such a powerful statement that um, is so beautifully and concisely said. I'm curious if you could just like in your perspective, like what does the ideal future of higher ed look like to you? I've been thinking about that. I think we need to get away from the idea that the normative model is four years from ages 18 to 22, Ivy lined campus. And, you know, I did that. It has its virtues. But if that's the only model that that equates to excellence and everything else is seen as sort of less than, then I think we're missing the point. People have very complicated lives and very different lives. And talent is distributed all over the population. So I would love to see a higher ed system emerge in which people can drop in and drop out and then come back later without it being held against them. In which... There's a a very significant experiential component 
and in which it's economically accessible for everybody. And I got into a battle with someone on the internet on this, so I want to clarify. <laughs> when I say accessible to everybody, I don't mean mandatory. <laughs> right, Some people right. hate school and they don't want to go. And if you're an adult and you don't want to go, it's a free country, you're an adult. You know, if you decide that you want to tour the country with your band or start a business or whatever, have at it. But I think it should be a realistic option for everybody. Agreed. Whether they choose to take it or not. I think that's a perfect place to conclude. Matt Reed, thank you so much for joining us today on Higher Voltage. I loved your statements. I'm glad you're doing the work that you're doing. If you haven't checked out Matt's column in Inside Higher Ed, I would highly recommend it. We'll have a link to the piece we talked about today on our episode page. Matt, thank you so much once again, and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Kevin. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage. We'll be back soon with a new episode. And until then, you can find us on Twitter at Volt Higher Ed. And you can find me, Kevin Tyler, on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2. 